0: Hi everybody, this is Radio Free Mormon, once again coming to you from my underground bunker to talk about the second session of General Conference. It's September 30th, 2023. We've just finished listening to the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference, and I made it through. I tell you, the first session this morning was a breeze. It was actually entertaining. By the way, by the time I was halfway through the second session, I was starting to feel that old familiar headache building like a thundercloud behind my eyes. I'm sure you know the feeling I'm talking about. It's like when you go, this is so mind-numbingly boring. Blood is about to start shooting out of my eyes. And yet I made a commitment, a covenant, with my listeners to be here, watching General Conference so you don't have to. Okay, so let's get to the fun and games of the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. Elder Oaks presiding in this session, just to shake things up from President Iring presiding in the first session, I guess. I guess is really kind of uh, exhausting, so they have to take turns. Let me see here. Oh, there was a pullback shot that I noticed of the entire conference center, which showed huge swaths of empty seats, especially up uh, that I could see way up there at the top in the balcony. I mean, it's like there was nobody in an entire section. It does look like attendance is getting a bit sparse. And maybe they built that uh, conference center a little bit too big for the future interest of members future as of the time that it was built. Oh, there's going to be a choir. There's going to be a different choir. And Elder Oaks, who, as I said, is presiding, announces that the choir for this session will be a multicultural choir comprised of members residing largely in northern Utah. But nevertheless, multicultural, he said, and multicultural they do appear to be. Good on you, Elder Oaks. Baby steps down the street. Every step in the right direction, I want to applaud. I think it's positive. The choir then sings, Oh, thou rock of our salvation. Next, we get to the sustaining of general authorities and officers of the church. President Iring drew the short straw on this one. Everyone's on pins and needles. I know I am. I'm wondering, will there be any dissenting votes? Now, I want to tell you that I think that they've worked things technologically in the conference center to where when they get to this point, as well as probably every other point. They have baffles and such and microphones in such a way that we can hear the speakers, but we can't hear what's going on out in the audience. Now, maybe things went on that I couldn't hear, or maybe everybody was just perfectly happy to sustain the general authorities as they usually are. But once again, with Tim Ballard and his specter hanging over this conference, I wonder about that. Oh, one note that Martine had mentioned, if you look at the sisters who are the officers, general officers in the church, they used to be stuck over here. I mean, once they got up on the stand, they could be on the stand with the guys. They were relegated to a cluster over here, and you'd have all the conservative suits and the cluster of all the very colored or varia colored um, outfits that the sisters were wearing. But now they're not all by themselves. Now they are allocated in seats along with the brothers, with the other elders, with the 70. So that's kind of an amazing, amazing move. Like I said, baby steps down the street, but good observation Martine. thank you okay so i'm watching it and of course elder iron gives the warning that is now commonplace before he starts saying the names if you oppose contact your state president who will whack your pp appropriately don't bring it up to us i mean bring it up to your state president for crying out loud that's what we pay him for and then after the first presidency they get to by itself elder oaks as the president of the quorum of the 12 which he is because he's second in seniority to the president of the church although he's not acting in that capacity because he's the first counselor in the first presidency so dallin oaks who is the president of the quorum of the 12 and m russell ballard we got to hear his name for the first time he does appear to be in attendance we'll see if he speaks later but to sustain M. Russell Ballard as the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And I listened very closely here. I didn't really hear anything. I wasn't sure if I did. But I did notice that at the point where he said any opposed to this particular sustaining, President Iring looked up and to his left quickly after saying any opposed. And I'm wondering if there was something that went on there that drew his attention that I could not hear, but he could. Or that I could not see, but he could. Then he mentions that there were two 70s who are released, but he doesn't mention their names, which was interesting. I know sometimes if there's a long list of 70s being released, like 10 or 15, he won't mention their names. He'll just refer people to the church website. But here, there's only two 70s who are being released. He doesn't mention their names. He just says their names can be found on the church website. While the choir was singing Jesus Once of Humble Birth after this, I looked it up, and I was able to find through Google, not through the church website. The church website has a horrible search function, but Google does better. And I found out that the two released Area 70s are Elder Kwan from the fourth quorum, includes Asia and parts of Asia, and the second one was Elder Henry J. Iring. Yes, President Eyring's son was being released as um, an Area 70 from the 10th quorum. They completed their service on August 1st, 2023. It's interesting that at least it seems to me that the reason he did not mention the names of two and only two seventies being released is because one of them was his son. And I don't know if that's because it's humility on president Iring's part to not mention his son's name, or is it because it tends to show the nepotism at work in the church? I'm not sure which, but I think there was a reason that he didn't mention the two. And I think the reason is because one of them is his son. So, Thank goodness he made it through that one alive. And there wasn't apparently any kind of protest or anyone yelling or shouting, though I'm not convinced I could hear it, even if there were. All right. As I said, the choir sings Jesus once of humble birth. And then we get up for the first speaker, the real first speaker to give a talk in the second session of General Conference is Elder Neil Anderson. Yes, Neil Anderson. Okay. I'm sure he's one of my favorite, one of yours too. Tells a story in South America. What is it about some guy sharing an experience? Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was really bad. I think it was in 2019. He said the year was. Anyway, there was a power blackout. There's chaos and anarchy in this country and South America and um, cats and dogs living together. <laughs> yeah, I typed that down. But some, a lot of people were out there looting and they were looting to find food. And there was a member of the church who lived in this town where all this stuff is going down. He's the owner. Of a, he's the owner of a small bakery. And he decided to give away all the food in the bakery to people in need. So great idea. I think that's very nice and commendable. One dark night now, rioters were everywhere in the city. And he goes home. He comes back to his bakery in the morning. Everybody else's stores, groceries, bakeries, they're all burned to the ground, but not his. His is fine. At dawn, the bakery was intact. Nothing had been destroyed. All the other small businesses had been destroyed. Now, it occurred to me that maybe that's because they'd given away all their food. So there wasn't anything really to come in and steal as far as food goes. But no, that's not the reason that Elder Neil Anderson draws from this. No, the reason why is because of what this fellow's son said when he came back home and told his family that there had been no damage to his bakery. And the son's eyes got wide. And he said, You know why that is, Dad? Dad says, Why? He says, Well, that's because. You pay your tithing. Yes, this is going to be a tithing talk. Elder Neil Anderson is going to give the tithing talk for general conference. He's not going to mention anything about having $157 billion in the bank, but he is going to talk about how we all need to pay our tithing just the same. He goes to that standard, threadbare, moth eaten passage in Malachi chapter 3 where it talks about, you know, bring you all the tithes and offerings into my house so that there may be meat in mine house and it will improve me now herewith, saith the Lord, if I will not pour you out a blessing so great that there shall not be, open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so great that there shall not be room enough to receive it. That one. I really can't hear that passage of scripture enough, but it always seems to be brought up whenever someone is talking about tithing, doesn't it? Then he adds, this is going to be important later on, Elder Nielsen adds that if you pay tithing, the Lord will protect us from evil as well. I'm not sure how good God's doing at that particular thing, but he says, if we pay tithing, we will be protected from evil. So we have uh, garments to wear to be protected from evil. We have commandments to follow to be protected from evil. We have money to pay in the form of tithes to God and we'll be protected from evil. It seems like we've got this protection from evil thing covered as Mormons, we have multiple ways and fail safes to make sure that we're protected from evil. And yet, evil things continue to happen, even to good Mormons. By the way, I wanted to mention that Maven, if you don't know this, I think it's also on the Mormon Discussions YouTube channel, Maven is conducting a marathon reading of, well, it's very sad actually, experiences of children, I believe it is, who have been abused in some way in the church by parents, there's a church connection, church leaders know about it, they don't do anything about it, those kind of stories. And I believe what she's done is organized a lot of people to read those stories in a kind of marathon fashion. So check that out once I'm done, or you can do it right now if you want. But um, yeah, give that a listen. I think it's really, really uh, a valuable thing that she's done. It was a great idea on her part. So, oh yeah, back to, the, back to the story about Neil Anderson. Of course, he's going to tell us how generous the church is, right? And how good the church is to poor people around the world. And I believe he said that the church recently donated $150 million, that's million with an M, dollars to help out poor people around the world. Now, $150 million, it's a lot of money. But relatively speaking, it is 0.15. Of a billion dollars if i'm doing my math correctly once again i suck at math but i think that 150 million is 0.15 of a billion dollars and the church has 157 of those billions of dollars in the bank not doing anything except making more money so i'm not sure that that's really something to be bragging about but taken out of context yeah 150 million good well it's better than a sharp stick in the eye so he says tithing is not a matter of money but of faith see it's not about the money it's the faith that you're exhibiting by paying it right so don't think about all the money the church has just think about the faith you need to have and to demonstrate by paying the church more money so it can hoard more of the money you give them as tithing being honest in our tithes shows we put the lord first in our lives Mm -hmm, that's right so let's be honest in our tithes so we can put the lord first in our lives and just you know coincidentally make the LDS church, uh, like one of the richest organizations in the country of the United States of America. I have to add that because I have to remember that this is streaming internationally. He says, I promise you, we're getting a lot of promises from apostles in this conference. And I always capitalize them so that I remember these promises. I promise you, he says that as you pay your tithes, the promises of God will follow. Okay. So apparently, as long as you pay your tithes, God will pour out blessings upon you so much that there will not be room enough to receive. He says, God directs that all tithes be brought into the church because he's likening the church to the storehouse in Malachi. Storehouse equals church, just give us your money, damn it. And he says, the use of those tithes will then be decided by the top leaders and by the voice of God unto them. Then he tells a story that was told by Gordon B. Hinckley who told it about his dad talking to Gordon when Gordon was a boy it's about the tithing and Gordon's dad says to him that his dad pays a faithful tithing all the time the money doesn't belong to the leaders of the church but to the Lord that's who the money belongs to so once it's paid it's out of my hands and I think the problem is is that the reality is is that it doesn't really belong to the Lord because the church is a corporation soul, which means there's only one person in the corporation. And that person is the president of the church at any given time. And right now it's president Russell M. Nelson, Russell M. Nelson owns all the property in the church, which means he owns $157 billion too. It's not actually the Lord. It's his technically speaking. But then again, going back to that Gordon B Hinckley quote, once I pay my ties, Gordon, it is not my money anymore. What they church leaders do with it should not concern you. Gordon, they will be accountable to the Lord as to what they do with it. So there you go. He is making the apologetic or the vast sums of wealth. Wealth beyond the dreams of Croesus that they have. 157 billion, it's probably more than that by now. Just in the Enzyme Peak account, which is really kind of a remarkable thing. That's a lot of money, but they have that. And so... It's not important for you members to think about the fact that they have all that money. What's important for you to know is that it's up to the leaders in God how it is that they'll be spent or how it is that they won't be spent. And you just need to pay your tithing. And don't worry your little mind about what it is they're doing with it or the fact it doesn't seem like they're doing anything with it. Okay. He mentions, of course, that last year more than a billion dollars was used by the church to bless those in need but he doesn't mention that it rose to a billion dollars only because they changed the system of counting to include fast offerings into the total. And that's how it ballooned up to over a billion dollars. If you're not familiar with that, the way that they counted it up to last year was to count humanitarian aid by itself. But then somebody got the bright idea, you know, we really need to pay more because people are finding out that we have all this money and we're not really helping people commensurate with how much we have. So they said, okay, here's how, we'll do, here's how we'll handle that problem. We're not going to actually help people more. No, we're just going to change our accounting method and take that same amount. And then we're going to take all the past offerings, which are used inside the church, of course, inside each word to help out individual members. We'll add that on top. Boom. It shot right up to just over a billion dollars. It's an amazing thing. Accounting is wonderful. Let me see here. Where are we now? Oh, he talks about temples. Temples are being built in unprecedented numbers, and all all of them are remaining largely empty, I might add, because, of course, he brings up temples because your tithes are going to build the temples, all these temples that aren't needed. But he did say, your tithes allow temples to be built in places only the Lord could foresee. That's a quote from him. Temples built in places only the Lord could foresee, which I interpret as meaning... They're built in places that nobody in their right mind would be building, okay? Because either there are not enough members to support it or there's too many other temples serving all these members like in Utah, but we keep adding temples within the same district. It's ridiculous. This church is building temples as fast as they're building ward buildings. Think about that. It may not be as fast as ward buildings, but it's as fast as wards are being created, So for every word that's being created, according to the recent statistics, at least my understanding of them, for every word that's created, a new temple is built. Does that make sense? That's why these temples are remaining largely unused. And my information is that some new temples are being dedicated. You have to call in to make an appointment because there's only going to be like two or three sessions a week that they're going to be holding there. Yeah, that's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But at least President Nelson gets to go down in history with having built the most temples, at least so far. He who dies with the most temples wins. <laughs> Take that, Gordon Hinckley. He also says, because of your tithes, the church is being established in faraway places you may never go. And he mentions the five institutions of higher learning that are supported by tithing, all the things that you know we generally hear about being supported by tithing. What he doesn't say, is that the church could cover all those expenses temples institutions of higher learning the whole nine yards everything that the church has to do with its money they could cover with absolutely no more tithing being paid by any members ever again that's the one thing he doesn't say because he doesn't want you to know that but i'll tell you because it's the truth basically The church makes about $7 billion a year in tithing. And they use around $6 billion of those dollars in order to fund the church to pay for all the programs and everything the church does. The billion dollars that's left over gets to go in the kitty. And that's the EPA fund, which is now up to $157 billion. If you take all tithing out of it and just go to the EPA fund, $157 billion when you invest it, which it is invested, will yield a return that covers the six billion dollars that the church uses for tithing right now with the one billion left over this church is a perpetual motion machine at this point it can continue forever to fund all of its liabilities and all of its programs based on the money it has now without even a penny more of tithing but that will not stop them they will still insist on your tithing as in this particular talk here he tells a story about going with Elder Eyring. I think it was 1980, He said, was it 98? I can't remember, but he said to Silicon Slopes, which apparently is a place in Utah. Forgive me for not knowing that. And Elder Eyring, when he was there, cautioned the saints about comparing what they had with others and always wanting more. Elder Eyring promised them, see, there it is, promised again. Hmm? When an apostle promises something, you need to listen. Elder Eyring promised them that if they paid an honest tithe, their desire for material things would diminish and i thought well no kidding because they won't have as much money to buy material things of course it's going to diminish naturally but but elder asban has the trump card to play because he says a couple of years later there was a huge collapse of the economy and he saw that as a fulfillment of what elder Iring said pay your honest tithe and you won't have as much desire for material things well when the system collapsed and you bet they didn't have so much of a desire for material things. So I love this story by Elder Rasband. I think he's, uh, he's a fun speaker to listen to. And i just got to say, I love the bottom line of this, which is if you pay an honest tithe, God will ruin you economically. <laughs> In the middle of his talk, where he's going all Malachi on us and saying, you know, pay your tithing and God will take care of you. What he's saying here is on the silicon slopes the story was a little bit different pay your tithing and god is going to crush you like a bug okay he tells another story about a family with a mom and dad and at least 10 children oh that's right he has pictures of them i remember i can't remember the last name it sounded like it might have been french i'm not sure and quoting the mother of the family she tells the same story about her dad told her if you pay your tithing you will never want for anything. Sure enough, that's what happened. They never wanted for anything, even though they have at least 10 kids in that picture, apparently. So tithing must be true. Tells another story about a mother-in-law. No, this is his mother-in-law. So his wife's mother, she's getting near the end of her life. She's weak. She's in pain. She receives a check in the mail. He doesn't say for what or how much. But he does say that his wife, mother-in-law's daughter, was offering to pay, write the check. And here, I just had to intuit a little bit because what he's getting at is that the mother-in-law gets a check and she wants to pay 10% to the church to pay her tithing. Her daughter offers to do it for her. Mother-in-law says, no, no, no. I want to do that myself because she wanted to be right with the Lord. She's on death's door. She's going to write this check herself. So when she crosses the threshold, she's not going to get punished by God for not making that last tithing payment. See, this is how we tie things in the Mormon church, between paying your tithing and God loving us or God being okay with us and us getting blessings. We don't pay tithing. Bad things are going to happen up to and including burning. But if we pay tithing, God's very happy with us and we're going to be okay when we get to the other side. Elder, is this... Hang on a second here. This is still Neil Anderson. I apologize. I was saying Rasband. He's going to talk later. He actually talks last. He's the last one I heard. That's why I had Rasband on my mind. But this is all Neil Anderson. Okay. And um, he says the church will continue to move across the world to prepare the world for the Savior's return. Tithing will help with that as well, right? But what's this continue to move across the world stuff? The church is shrinking. It's not moving anywhere unless it's down. Mm-hmm. But still we get the language, the built-in knee-jerk language from church leaders intimating that it's continuing to grow when actually it's not. He repeats President Nelson's words about in the coming days we will see the greatest miracles in the power of God that the world has ever seen. We've already heard that once in this conference, I believe. We're hearing it again now from Elder Nielsen. But President nelson excuse me, President Nelson. This is Neil Anderson. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's already having the impact on my brain, general conference. I've got general conference, (laughs) pray. Neil Anderson is quoting President Nelson, all right? But President Nelson said that six months ago, didn't he? I mean, what happened in the interim, in the coming days? How many days is that? Is it six months worth of days? Apparently not, because it's been six months since he said it and nothing's happened. President Nelson said that six months ago. And I say, what happened in the interim? Or is this going to be one of those promises that is endlessly repeated and never fulfilled? Kind of like Jesus' second coming. I think it looks like one of those promises. People will continue to quote it forever and how wonderful it is. And only now and again will someone look around and notice that it's never fulfilled. It just keeps being promised. Okay, so now we go to Jan E. Newman. This is a guy. We know that because he's the second counselor in the general Sunday school presidency. He has to be a guy. Jane, Jan E. Newman. Newman. Second counselor, general Sunday school presidency. Let me uh, let me pick this up. He tells a story from the Book of Mormon about the angels coming down and, you know, ministering to the little ones. Those children grow up to establish that society of peace for 200 years. And it wouldn't be great if her children had an experience like that. This is aimed at the kids. And it's it's aimed at the the parents of the kids the parents of the kids who are leaving the church who aren't growing up in the church who are growing up and leaving the church yeah those parents need to get on the stick (laughs) it's got that kind of talk so yeah it would be great if our children had an experience like that with you know having the savior there and show up and the you know having everybody come forward and feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet and have the angels come down and ministering to the kids, yeah, that'd be amazing, but it's not going to happen. So Jan Newman is left with going back to reading the scriptures, praying and being obedient. That's what we've got to do. Got to teach our kids, drag them to church, make sure they're praying every day, reading the scriptures, being obedient, and then they won't leave at all. Yeah, that hasn't been working very well. We have to be absolutely righteous and obedient and teach our children to do the same thing. It takes strength. Each person must dig deep to find the rock on which they're going to build their testimony of Jesus Christ. And he also gives a story of King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon, and the families all coming together to hear his speech, and a covenant to enter into a covenant with God to do his will all the remainder of our days. But as he notes, those kids didn't hang in there for some reason. Those kids, many of the rising generation who didn't understand the words of King Benjamin, and they didn't believe the traditions of their fathers about Jesus coming, and they wouldn't be baptized or join the church What a sobering thought. Our rising generation needs to have faith in Christ for themselves. How can we instill that desire in our children? Well, he says we need to follow the advice of Nephi. And that's where he says we preach of Christ, we teach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, etc. But I did have to say, talking about following the advice of Nephi and children, This is a bad time in a bad general conference to mention children and advice from Nephi in the same sentence, just saying. So, he's really not saying anything more than if you make your kids go to church and read the scriptures and listen to modern prophets, which he does say, they will grow up good. But I'm not sure that's working too well, judging by what is going on in the church right now, and the whole reason this talk is being given. The talk's being given because kids are leaving the church. How do we keep them from leaving the church by doing the same things that we've been telling the parents to do with their kids forever? There's nothing new here. There's no new plan. You just have to keep doing the same old plan. They're just doubling down on the same old programs that aren't working anymore and promising that if we do the same things that aren't working, they will somehow miraculously work in the future. You know, I'm reminded, isn't that the working definition of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over? expecting different results yeah i think that's what this talk falls under he advocates that if you do small things over and over and consistently like family home evening that's going to do the trick once again how is that working for you mormon church it's also an effective way of putting the blame on the parents for kids who leave the church and everybody who leaves the church is somebody's kid it isn't the fault of the leaders It's the fault of the parents. And if you don't do everything that you're supposed to do as a good Mormon and as a good Mormon parent, what we tell you to do, then your kids leave the church. The converse of which is, if your kids leave the church, then you weren't doing everything that you were supposed to do. And believe me, there's so many things that you're supposed to do as a Mormon. You're going to fall short somewhere, and that's where the blame's going to go. Absolutely. Members, all to blame. Leaders, immaculate. Oh, let's see. He tells uh, the parents that you are doing better than you think, as you can see from the results. But just keep doing it. Your children may forget the Savior for a season, but I promise you, another promise, even though he's just a 70, but I promise you he will never forget them. And one day they will return because they will remember all the great stuff you taught them growing up. So even if they leave, I mean, you keep on. You're straight and narrow, okay? Keep holding that iron rod because eventually, because you taught them when they were young, later on, they're gonna remember it and come back to you, unless they don't. Now we get to elder, I think it's Joaquin Costa or Costa of the 70. He quotes President Nelson again, about in the coming days, we will see manifestations of the Savior's power greater than the world has ever seen. Once again, we get this quote. And I know it's a wonderful quote and it builds all this excitement, but you know there's no there there. There's no fulfillment. We're just going to keep saying it over and over because I guess saying it makes us feel better in spite of the fact that it has gone unfulfilled since it was uttered by the current president of the church and I expect it will remain unfulfilled forever after. Oh, he gives some examples of people. This is His talk's sort of about faith. Giving examples of people who are members of the church who have gone through really horrible things. The one that caught my eye was a picture of this one girl who's a member of the church in a wheelchair. She'd lost a leg. He says it was because some people were stealing her cell phone and they shoved her under a train. Uh, Maybe not on purpose, but still. She went on a train and it ran ran over her leg and it just took it right off. So, And her dad's a single dad. So now she is without a leg. Her single dad has to take care of her. Of course, she's going to take a lot more care with only one leg. And um, this is the example of faith. You see, there's no blessing. There's no healing. It's just an illustration of continuing in faithfulness to Mormonism in spite of all the bad stuff that happens to you. Now, this is something that reminds me of a quote from Macbeth. And uh, it's a quote that I really like. It has to do with all these bad things that happen to people, and God doesn't lift a finger. Even though, as Christians, we believe God loves us perfectly, has all power, and yet doesn't seem to be able to be bothered to help us out in an encounter with a train, for example, here. I'll be really quick, okay? This is not Macbeth, the character. This is Macduff, the character, who's going to be in opposition to Macbeth. But he also was a Thane in Scotland who ran away to England, where they're getting an army together to march on Scotland and take down Macbeth. But He leaves his wife and children in Scotland at his estate and they end up getting murdered because Macbeth hears about him leaving and says, really? Well, I'll send some guys over there to take care of his family as a thank you. So now he's in England. He doesn't know this, but somebody now comes to join him who does know it from Scotland and he has to break the news to Macduff that his wife is dead and all of his kids are dead. And by the way, that's because you were an idiot who ran away and left them there. Okay, so having said that, there's a whole lot of stuff that uh, Macduff says, but what he says here is imagining the situation where his family's getting murdered. He says, did heaven look on and would not take their part? This is the question that we ask ourselves from time to time when horrible things happen. Did heaven look on, does God see what's going on and he wouldn't help them? Why not? That's the question. It doesn't answer the question, but it sure as heck raises it. And it's one of the reasons why Shakespeare is so great. Okay, what this amounts to, leaving Shakespeare behind going on with this talk, what this amounts to is a talk about continuing faithful in Mormonism in spite of the fact that none of the miracles Mormonism promises are forthcoming. That actually was pretty well put. I'm going to say it again. I think this is better put than anything I've heard in general conference so far. What this amounts to is a talk about continuing faithful in Mormonism, in spite of the fact that none of the miracles Mormonism promises are forthcoming. All right. One mistake we make, he says, is thinking that if we are obedient, God will protect us. He says this. One of the mistakes we make is that thinking that if we are obedient, God will protect us. Well, hang on just a minute. Isn't that exactly what we were just told by Elder Neil Anderson? Remember I told you to pay attention when he said that if you pay your tithing, God will protect us from evil? That's what he said. In the same session of General Conference, we have contradictory messages. You get them all the time, frequently in this category. Somebody saying... If you do what you're supposed to do, God will protect you. And the other person will say, if you do what you're supposed to do, eh, (laughs) and God doesn't protect you, you just continue faithful anyway. Okay? Those are the two talks. Elder Anderson's talk is the former. Elder um, Jan, no, it's Joaquin Costa. Elder Joaquin Costa's talk is the opposite. Okay, so the girl with the leg cut off, she says she experienced tumult and hate and a lot of other negative emotions, which I didn't have time to write down. When this happened, I can only imagine, my gosh. But she says, this was something that brought me closer to others and the Lord. Instead of distancing myself from him, I had to cling to him. Okay, well, I, you know, God bless her. Whatever she has to do to deal with this, you know, that's her business. I'm just glad God doesn't want to bring me closer to him. I could, I could end up on the wrong side of a rail car. Sounds like risky business wanting to become closer to God. Once again, faith does not produce miracles anymore. Faith is simply there to help us continue being Mormon in spite of all the bad stuff that God throws at us. That sounds like a dysfunctional relationship, doesn't it? Now, the choir sings, There is Sunshine in My Soul Today, and the next talk is given by Elder Gary E. Stevenson, a.k.a. The Billionaire. Story about women playing soccer. He talks about women playing soccer, but he's just leading into people who have natural gifts. And uh, athletes, dance, gymnastics, blah, 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 art, drama, math, science. People have different gifts. But just because you have a gift, you still have to work on it. So he's going to segue from that into spiritual gifts. That's what his talk is going to be about. Ah, spiritual gifts. He says members are given spiritual gifts of testimony, wisdom, knowledge, miracles, etc. Miracles? Really? Haven't heard of any lately, at least not in general conference. A gift alone doesn't a master make, he says. You have to work at it. Reminds you of the old saying about the guy coming to New York City and asking somebody for directions, saying, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the response, of course, as you know, is practice, practice, practice. Yeah, this is that kind of talk. And how do we work to develop our spiritual gifts? Yeah, it's the list. You can't get away from it in Mormonism. You're going to hear the list, even in general conference. You got to attend church. You got to read your scriptures. You got to be obedient, yada, yada, yada. That's how you develop your spiritual gifts, by doing everything you're supposed to do as a Mormon. But the best gift of all, the best spiritual gift of all is the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. The best spiritual gift of all is the Spirit itself. I made that one up. He didn't say that. And how do you get this gift? By doing everything you're supposed to do. The list. So the thought occurs to me that if you pay for a gift by doing everything you're told to do, is it really a gift? It sounds to me more like higher and salary. Especially when one of those things you have to do to get the gift is to pay your tithing. <laughs> yeah, that's really sounding like just a, an exchange. Not a gift at all, not in Mormonism. In Mormonism, a gift is not a gift until it's paid for. And how do we gain the companionship, constant companionship of the Holy Ghost? He's got four great ideas. Stand in holy places, stand with holy people, bear your testimony as often as you can of holy things, and listen to the Holy Spirit. Really quick, number one, stand in holy places. Japanese visitors to the open house, it was probably the one in, was it Fujiyama, Fukujiyama? I can't remember. It's recent. Uh, visitors to open house really grooved on the idea that rooms were shown in the temple where ordinances for deceased ancestors were performed. Of course they were, you know, that Japanese are really into their ancestors. A dignitary, a Japanese dignitary, whispered in Elder Stevenson's ear, even the air in here is different. Which Elder Stevenson immediately interpreted as, he's feeling the Holy Ghost. Okay, next one, stand with holy people. Oh, he talks about the sports arena and how usually you got a bunch of Uh, rowdy people in a sports arena. But this one night, this sports arena was filled with thousands of young people there to celebrate and commemorate the life of Joseph Smith. The arena was filled with the Holy Ghost. He could literally see it in their faces. I'm not sure what that looks like, but it must be amazing. The spirit cannot be restrained from attending a meeting of holy people. That's a quote from him. The spirit cannot be restrained from attending a meeting of holy people. To which I appended, unless, of course, they're meeting in an unholy place. See, rule number one. <laughs> so, holy people in an unholy place, no spirit. Sorry. This is basically don't hang out with bad friends, but only with faithful Mormons. And of course, the problem with this is that this sometimes has the result of judging people based on their membership rather than their innate goodness. Yeah, we've seen that happen. Number three, bear testimony as often as you can. He tells a story which I'm gonna guess is largely apocryphal, about his own taxi ride. He had a 40 minute taxi ride, warm gospel conversation with the driver, paid and got ready to leave, but realized all of a sudden I'm getting out of the cab, I didn't bear my testimony. What was I thinking? I could have had a V8. So he bore a simple testimony and he tells us it brought tears to both our eyes. Really? Okay, if you say so, but that's where the story ends. Number four, listen to the Holy Spirit. He speaks in subtle, quiet tones. Oh my gosh, it's always this, he whispers. So you have to listen so closely because why? Why can't he speak up? Why can't he talk in a normal tone of voice? He's God for crying out loud. Why does he just whisper? It's like he has laryngitis. But there's no good reason for the Holy Ghost to not speak plainly, none so that there, is no, there can be no confusion. If he spoke plainly, there would be no confusion, this constant confusion that members of the church have about when the Holy Ghost is talking and when it's just their own thoughts. Nope. We're always going to have that confusion. Why? Why does the Holy Ghost, why is he taught to be speaking in such a still, small voice? I have finally concluded that the reason the church teaches that is so that you can't tell when the Holy Ghost is not talking to you. That's why he whispers, so he can't tell that he's not saying anything at all. But he gives us some cautions as well. Advice from the Spirit will align with the Scriptures. And the prophets. <laughs> they always have to hit this. You guys, you can have your own constant companionship with the Holy Ghost, but you have to remember, anytime the Holy Ghost is going to talk to you, I don't care how loud he's going to talk or how soft he's going to talk, he's going to say what we're telling you. He's not going to contradict us because we are in like this with the Holy Ghost. We are his representatives, which of course makes you think, why the heck do we need the Holy Ghost at all if you're there to tell us everything he's gonna tell us anyway, and in advance. Don't use it to counsel or direct others, not in your stewardship, right? It's always there, you know, you can't tell somebody that you're not over what the Holy Ghost told you for them to do. And that's why it's good to be an apostle, right? It's like Mel Brooks in History of the World Part Two. it's good to be the king because you're over everybody, so you can tell everybody what the Holy Ghost has told you. And the good news about the Holy Ghost is he is into solidarity, and he will back you up with everybody. And if they get a different answer, it's not the Holy Ghost talking. You have to be patient. You have to trust you will receive what you need when the time is right, which is his way of saying, even when the Holy Ghost doesn't talk to you, it doesn't mean he doesn't exist. He'll get around to it You know, when he has time. He's a busy man and use your best judgment. Sometimes God wants you to act on your own without inspiration. So you just do things that are good without being prompted to do it. But of course, the times when the Holy Ghost is prompting us in the still small voice when we're not really sure what it is, versus the times when we're supposed to act on our own without inspiration, how can you tell the difference between the two? That part he doesn't go into. All right. Oh, finally, he encourages personal affirmations to the youth. He tells the youth, when you're in front of the mirror every morning, you should say positive affirmations <laughs> about yourself. He does. Like, I am a child of God. He knows me. I'm amazing. That should make everybody feel better. Okay. End of his talk. Now we go, go to Elder Yung Huan Che, I think is how it's pronounced. I think it's spelled C H O I, but they pronounce it Che of the 70. Oh, my gosh. Okay, his talk is, do you want to be happy? Here's how. Be Mormon and be a good Mormon and you'll be happy. And if you're not happy being a good Mormon, you're not really being a good Mormon. And I think we both know what I'm talking about. Really, that's his talk. Do you want to be happy? Stay on the covenant path. See how simple it is. Want to be miserable? Break those covenants. What could be more obvious? This is one of the talks you hear in every general conference. Live the gospel and it will make you happy, no exceptions. Don't live the gospel and you will be unhappy, no exceptions. Living the Mormon gospel is the only way you can be happy, truly happy. We heard that in the morning session, didn't we? But this talk is in counterpoint to the other talks you hear in every general conference about members who do everything they are supposed to do, but still aren't happy and aren't blessed. And we've already heard those kind of talks. Okay. He gives a story about a person who left the church and was miserable, but came back to church and now was doing very well. (laughs) When we keep the commandments, we will be happy. Oh, and he tells a story about when he was called to be a bishop. It was during a very difficult time in his life. He thought the challenges would never end. I think they were financial as well as other things. He also started doubting as well. I didn't quite get what he was doubting. And I have an idea what he meant. This is when he was called as a bishop. His wife, you know, he gets called in the state president's office. They bring the wife along, and he says, we want you to be the bishop. He goes, okay, how about you, wife? She didn't say yes. He said she didn't say no. She didn't say much of anything because she was crying too hard because of all the crap they're going through. And now her husband's going to have to be the bishop? Amazing. Of course, he was sustained as bishop the following Sunday, regardless of his wife's feelings about the subject. And when he was released six years later, here we go. By the way, apparently those six years were kind of hellish for his wife. But it was all made good by what happened the day he was released. And during sacrament meeting, his wife heard a voice saying, whispering, because it was too hard for you to walk, I called him, I called him as bishop to walk for you. Yeah, because it was too hard for you to walk, I called him his bishop to walk for you. I don't even know what that means. Honestly, it sounds like it's that that uh, that Hallmark card or whatever it is about the footprints in the stand sand. And when you look back, there was only one set of footprints, right? Because the sand people walk in single file or something like that. It's like that's what he's doing, but I don't. I don't even understand. Okay, I know it. It has the the form of sounding profound, but it lacks the Substance thereof. Okay. And he concludes with, My dear brothers and sisters, do you want to be happy? Stay on the covenant path. Okay. Elder Alan Phillips of the 70. Now he starts with a very, very interesting story. It's one I think we can all relate to. His family, I think it was six years ago, his family's on a motor trip. You know, they're out driving somewhere and they got everybody in the car and they stop at a service station. They all go to the bathroom. They get back in the car. They drive on down the road about 40 minutes. And then one of his kids says, Dad, where's Jasper? And he says, well, he's in the back seat where he always sits. And the kid looks at him, no, he's not there, dad. <laughs> and so they've lost Jasper. So now they have to turn around and head back. 40 minutes, if you can imagine, that would be a long 40 minutes, driving back to the service station to find out what happened to their son, if he's still there and if he's still alive. They call the police on the way, good move. When they get there, there's two police cars with their lights going, And he runs up to one of the police cars and he sees his son sitting in one. I think it was probably in the front seat. And he says he was playing with the buttons. (laughs) So it's a cute story. It's a cute story. And he says it testifies of a loving father, heavenly father, who perfectly loves all of us. You see, I think that it's a good story. We can learn a lot of things. But when you start drawing broad conclusions from stories like this, it testifies of a loving heavenly father who perfectly loves all of us then you need to not start thinking about the next step because the next step is but what if the story of jasper had not had such a happy ending would he still feel the same way that this testifies of a loving heavenly father who perfectly loves all of us and if not should the fact that not all such stories have happy endings Make the speaker a little more cautious in drawing such conclusions about God and his love for us. I'm glad there was a happy ending there. Usually they do end in happy endings, but not always. And sometimes they are very unhappy indeed. He strikes a blow against evolution. You are not a cosmic mistake. Where there is a design, there is a a designer. Definitely an anti-evolution sentiment here. He prolongs that but that's the substance of it. It's interesting, though, that when you say that where there is a design, there is a is a designer. It's kind of like when you say, when there's a creation, there has to be a creator. Well, you've already answered your question by saying that it's a design. If there's a design, yeah, there has to be a designer, but that's because you've already defined what you see around you as a design. When there's a creation, yeah, there has to be a creator, but that's because you've already defined what you see around you as a creation. So when we call a creation, yeah, there's a creator, but that's because we call it a creation. I think you get what I mean. Let me continue. He encourages members to help people who are in poverty. Um, oh gosh, this started getting to me. He encourages members to help people who are in poverty. These are the same members of the church who have paid their tithes and their offerings to the church. So the church can help people who are in poverty The church really isn't doing a bang-up job on that. Instead of they're hoarding all this gold like Smaug from The Hobbit, they're hoarding it all in the EPA account. And now this joker, who seems like a nice guy, but he's going to come out now and say, okay, that's not enough. Now we want you to give more of your money to help the poor. Since the money you gave to the church to help the poor is being hoarded by the church, now you need to give more of your money to help the poor. Not a good sell, not a good look. But that's not enough, apparently. Oh, excuse me. That was actually the same point I just made. Oh, he echoes President Nelson's quote, and this has been mentioned a couple times in this conference, about being yoked with Jesus. This whole thing about we're in a yoke, it's a double yoke, and like oxen, right? And there's something that we're yoked with. We can't do it because it's too much for us. But if we yoke with Jesus, baby, there ain't nothing we can't plow. So... We've got Jesus over here. He's in this joke. We're here in this joke. We're pulling together. And nobody ever asked the question, okay, if Jesus is here and I'm here, who the heck is driving the team? I've got a feeling I know who that is. And he looks a lot like Mr. Burns. Okay, so Elder Ronald Rasband is the concluding speaker. Now, I told you he spoke. He's the last speaker. And now he's going to talk about missionary work. He's not just going to talk about that. He's going to talk about missionaries in other words signing up to serve and he's not going to talk about the elders and the sisters he's going to talk about the senior couples because not enough of you senior couples are signing up to serve he says that he some time ago he went to go do his assignments of the missionaries like apostles do they go in there with the spirit of the lord and they move names around put companionships together and but actually that's probably the mission president who puts the companionships together they just take the missionaries who have applied and look at what's needed in the different missions and assign them accordingly. And that's, that's the spirit of God at work in the Mormon church. But he says he got there and he got done with all those missionaries. Now he turns to the senior couples that he has to do. He's only got 10 of them. There's 10 senior couples who have signed up to serve a mission. And he asked the guy with him, he says, well, how many slots do we have? What's the need for senior couples? And the guy says, 300. He says, we got 10 people to fill 300 slots. This is no bueno. We need more. And here's where the guilt comes in, right? We need more of you senior couples who have spent your whole life sacrificing for the church, have now retired, or at least are independently wealthy, and you've got all your grandkids now because you did everything the church told you about having the kids and they had kids. you got grandkids now. You'd like to enjoy them, but no. There is no enjoyment of your grandchildren for you. You need to go on your mission, and maybe even more than one mission. Because remember how Elder Pearson raised a ruckus earlier this year by encouraging older members to serve two missions, one a service mission and one a cross mission. I mean, they serve 18 months, you put two together, that's three years, good grief. You know, there really never is a point at which you've done enough for this church. They will ride you and ride you and ride you until you break, until you collapse or until you're dead. And on the other side of that, if you cross them, they'll throw you to the curb without a second thought. That's the LDS church. Excuse me, that's the Mormon church to which we belong or used to in some cases. He even talks about the grandchildren. Um, Let me see here. Let me go through these notes. Oh, he tells a nice story. He tells a story about his parents, right? So it comes about that he meets this woman. Her name's Rebecca. Rebecca. And Rebecca says to him, do you know these two people with the last name Rasband? He says, yeah, it's my parents. And she says, okay, they were a senior couple who tracted me out in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Many, many years ago, it was probably in the 70s given from a date that she gives. And she had already, she was very interested in Mormonism because of the Osmonds. She was a big Osmond fan. And then um, Elder Rasband says that Rebecca is in the audience. He's he's the guy who does this. Remember last time when he talked about some king from a nation in Africa who was in the audience. Well, Rebecca's in the audience, and not only is Rebecca in the audience, Donnie Osmond's in the audience too, apparently. So Donnie's there and Rebecca's there, and he says about Rebecca that she spent two years researching the church's beliefs in the school library because she's in, you know she's a kid, maybe she's uh, high school at the most. And I started thinking about my high school library back in the 70s, and I thought, how much stuff did my high school library have in it about Mormons? And I thought, was there enough really to justify two years of research in the school library about Mormons? But I guess they had a really extensive section on Mormonism in Rebecca's high school library at Fort Lauderdale. All right, it's a good story. So... How much are you going to find oh yeah i had said that especially back in the 60s and early 70s how much are you going to find out about mormons but then elder rasband's parents knocked on rebecca's door taught her the discussions her parents were reluctant at first but they ended up being persuaded by elder rasband's mother who always had a light around her face as they described her later always had a light around her face and his father who always had a sparkle in his eyes Mm-hmm. They went over Rebecca's parents who were at first resistant. in April, 1979, she was baptized, so that's a year after me, along with her family. And Elder Rasband took a photo of her and her family, took it home to his mom, and she cried and said, this is the happiest day of her life because you've reminded me of these people that I baptized. I mean, screw the day you were born, son. This is the happiest day of my life, and these people got baptized, and I got to see a picture of them. I'm sure it made her very happy. So, of course, everybody who is old should go on a mission. You don't think Elder Raspin is telling the story for grands, do you? No, there's a point behind it, and that's what it is. You all need to go on a mission so you all can have this great joy and happiness while your grandchildren are growing up without you. He even addresses the grandchildren question. He says, what about our grandchildren? He says that his mom would have said, I have grandchildren. I want them to know that we went on a mission to set an example for our posterity and we have been blessed, so blessed. Yeah, he adds the so blessed. So be a good example for your kids, grandkids, and let them grow up without their grandparents. That's what I always say. It's certainly what Elder Rasband is saying right here. So he says, missions around the world are pleading for your help, and you can do all the kinds of things. I think he said, what was it? It wasn't a cornucopia, it was some kind of big thing. Um, There's all sorts of things that you can do as a senior couple on a mission. You know, you can do this, you can do that, you can proselyte. But then he adds all these other things, like including you can work on, you can work at the mission home office, you can work at church farms, you can work at church historic sites, which, you know, also has the salubrious effect of the church not having to pay for these services, which they would otherwise have to pay for. So, in other words, we want you older couples to sacrifice seeing your grandchildren grow up so you can work for the church, for free. We only got $157 billion in the bank. We're pinching every penny, so we need your help. He says, serve, and then perhaps serve again. He says it too. So it's not just Elder Pearson. Elder Rasben says, serve, and then perhaps serve again. He's wanting two missions out of these older couples too. He prays now. If you haven't felt the guilt enough, you older couples in the church, he prays that the next time he sits down to assign senior couples, there will be hundreds anxiously awaiting the call. Well, that is the end of the last talk of the, sun, of the Saturday afternoon session of General Conference. And I covered it in 55 minutes, so I'm getting a little bit better. I'm going to have to hang around now because in about one hour, they're going to start with the Saturday evening session of General Conference. And I'll be here after that to run down the talks from that session as well. I hope you'll join me. Thank you for joining me so far. Please click like, yes, like on this, and then subscribe too, all right? I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for staying up with me and watching the stars come out. I'll join you in about three more minutes. I hope you'll be here too. I'm gonna end this live stream now. Thanks so much. Watching General Conference here, so you don't have to.